0: Hello, we are in the midst of the VBS season and uh, it's that time of year we're going to be kicking off tonight. Uh, if you can't hear, be here physically this week, I do ask uh, that you be praying for what God wants to do, not only in the, the kids' lives, but in the adults' lives as they love on these kids and just feed these kids uh, the Word of God. And uh, So it's just, I'm expecting good things to happen and uh, I don't know what God's all got planned, but I'm going in with great expectations by Thursday, just be able to look back and be like, wow, that was, that was awesome. So um, if you have your Bible with you, I want to encourage you to make your way to the book of Revelation. Revelation is the very last book of the Bible. Uh, we are walking through a series you can see behind me called Dear Church, as um, so we're going to be looking at the seven churches found in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, uh, just to see what Jesus Christ is saying to these churches. The book of Revelation tells us that Jesus walks among the seven golden lampstands, and the seven golden lampstands are representation or symbolic of the seven churches. And so, though each church is individually focused on, uh, one thing we do know is the message to each church is also to what is the universal church, as each church is concluded by a statement that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you hear that we're going to be going through Revelation and you get really excited because you, there's a lot of stuff in there that is like, wow, I hope we talk about that. We're, we're not going to get past chapter three, so I'll just pop your bubble right there. Um, if you're like into the symbolism and the premillennialism, postmillennialism, the tribulation, all that stuff, then um, sorry again. Uh, we're not going to be dealing with a lot of the symbolism. There isn't very much symbolism in dealing with the seven churches. Jesus comes to his bride, his body, and basically gets right to the point of what is going on within the church. Uh, things that he has to remind them of, things he may have to rebuke them of. And so what we're going to be doing is, is looking at these seven churches and what is Jesus saying to his bride? We're not going to look at these churches and say, okay, well, Harvest Hill is that church or Harvest Hill isn't that church. What is Jesus saying to his bride, his body, his church that we can learn from that as a church? as a whole, but also as individuals and what Jesus is telling us, because the church is a gathering of God's people. The word church means those people whom God has called out to in turn call out to the world for the sake of the gospel. So uh, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 8. We're going to be walking through verse 8 through verse 11 in chapter 2. Before we do that, I just want to say, Nick, those are some awesome purpley skinny pants you got going on. Love them. Uh, just Sorry, I just had to get it out of my system. Love them. I can't, I can't pull off purpley skinny pants. So um, Now we get back to the Bible. Right, let's, pray, or let's, read, let's read the Word of God. Starting in verse 8, Revelation chapter 2. The angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but our synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. As we tie these messages together for this series, there's some differences between Smyrna and Ephesus. Ephesus, we have a lot of biblical material. We can go and look at certain letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. We can see when Paul came to Ephesus. We don't know for sure when the church of Smyrna came into existence. Some people believe it was when Paul spent his three years in Ephesus and and people came into Ephesus to hear Paul teach and preach and then they went back and started a church. But we don't know for sure. What we can know about the church really focused around the city to which the church was planted in. The word Smyrna is related to the word that we know as myrrh. You may know that word when it comes to the story of the three wise men. I don't call it the Christmas story because if you read the story, Jesus was a toddler, not a baby, when the wise men came to visit him. But they brought myrrh. One of the things that myrrh was used for was to embody Uh, or to embalm dead bodies. It was to keep them fresh and alive. And so that was a symbolism going on there. In the city of Smyrna, the name itself spoke of myrrh. It spoke of death. And so we're going to find a lot of playing on that idea of death. If you look there in verse 1, the words of the first and last who died and came to life. Jesus speaks about in the end of verse 10 that you are to be faithful unto death. Another thing that Smyrna meant and is related to when it comes to myrrh is the word bitter. Um, and, and I believe this is what is playing out as we walk through these passages. The name of the city points to death. Again, a strong emphasis is on death and Jesus' death and His resurrection and then the faithfulness of the believers and the church to be faithful unto death. But one thing we do not find here, as we found in the church of Ephesus and dealing with the church of Smyrna, is Jesus never rebukes the church of Smyrna. In the church of Ephesus, He gave them an affirmation and then a rebuke. Here in Smyrna is tied to the church of Philadelphia in chapter 3, and that there is only affirmation. Now during the time of Revelation, just so we can gain some context of the believers in the church in the city, The the city of Smyrna was a very proud and beautiful city. It's located about 40 miles north of Ephesus. Um, it, It had prestige. It had power. It boasted in its emperor worship. It had a very strong Jewish population that lived within the city. And these two forces of the Roman culture and the Jewish population is going to be what brings the pressure or the tribulation upon the church. The city of Smyrna is said to be a city of great wealth. And of all the cities in Asia, Smyrna was the loveliest. Men called it the ornament and the crown and the flower of Asia. It was a city where culture flourished. It was a place where the Roman culture in particular flourished. When it came to the Jewish population, Rome had a policy that they pretty much just put up with the Jews. They allowed them to do their Jewish practices and their Jewish worship services to an extent. As long as they paid their taxes and showed their homage to, to Caesar, they allowed them to go. But when it came to Christianity, uh, when Judaism and Christianity found their split and found the differences, and Rome recognized that they were different, Christianity became heavily persecuted. So here's this church in Revelation chapter 2 of Smyrna that is surrounded by wealth. Surrounded by prestige and beauty. And in the midst of all this wealth, in the midst of all this emperor worship and Jewish worship, in the midst of all this entertainment, we see that the church itself is living in the midst of poverty. They seem to be struggling. With the church of Ephesus, we saw that they had strong doctrine and theology and orthodoxy. The church at Smyrna had this statement, We practice the three P's, persecution, poverty, and prison. I say that every time I said that this week, I remind myself of Dwight Schroot from The Office. You know, beats, bears, Battlestar Galactica. So, Smyrna was persecution, poverty, prison. That was their statement. I mean, that's what they practiced. And so you can imagine coming to visit the church of Smyrna or coming across a believer at the church of Smyrna and asking, so tell me about your church. Can you imagine the sort of things they're going to have to say? Well, we're in a beautiful city. It's flourishing in the arts. It's engulfed in culture. We experience some of the best of entertainment. But as a church, we suffer great persecution. We have no financial resources and we are imprisoned repeatedly. Can you imagine that conversation? So for us today, we heard, okay, prison. You mean you have a prison ministry? No, we actually go to prison. Oh, so you mean poverty? You mean you don't live in the excesses of this world but are more monastic in lifestyle and kind of you know do away with all the wonders and things of this world? So no, we literally have no resources whatsoever. Our church services are basically gathering together in worship and, and getting into the Word of God and, and understanding who Jesus Christ is. And see, is Smyrna existed today, question, come out, so tell me about your children's ministry. Tell me about your student ministry. The church of Smyrna would be like, well, you know, our children's pastor just got out of prison, and you know, oh, that's great. And, well, no, not really, because they got out because they were executed. See, that's Smyrna. Smyrna has no appeal to visitors in today's world. They were not a high-attended church, yet this church is Only one of two of all seven here in Revelation that that does not receive a rebuke by Jesus Christ. Because Jesus does not not weigh or judge the church based upon the world's standards. Jesus comes to this church here in verse 9 and says, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, and I know the slanders of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. That word tribulation, we read in verse 9, and we also find there in verse 10, that word means affliction. But even more than affliction, it means crushing pressure. Jesus comes to this church and he says, I know that things where you are are tense. See, Rome didn't put up with Christianity at the time of the writing of Revelation. Christianity was not the the church of Rome at this point in time. And the Jews didn't associate with Christians because the separation between Christianity and Judaism is Christianity believes that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. Jews don't believe that. They believe that Jesus or the Messiah is yet to come. And so there's a separation because the Jews didn't affiliate with the Christians and Rome didn't, really, Rome didn't want to put up with Christians. The Christians that lived within Smyrna and in this, in this empire... They were heavily persecuted. They had no legal rights. They had no civil rights. They were not protected by the government. They were not associated with by any other religions. The church of Smyrna was alone. There was no one for them, and by all appearances, everyone was against them, which is what led to their poverty there in verse 9. In the Greek, the word poverty can mean two different things. One word for poverty in the Greek, which is what the New Testament is written in, it means that it's an individual who has to work for a living. That's one word for Greek poverty. So a lot of us, according to Greek standards in Roman world, we are, we are in poverty because we work for a living. The other word for poverty, which is used here in speaking of Smyrna, are individuals who have absolutely nothing. They have no resources. The church of Smyrna was probably brought together by jobless and homeless individuals. This was not an eye candy type of church. They did not have a multi-million dollar facility. They did not have multiple campuses. They did not have a cool podcast. They did not have ministries that were just expanding and exploding. This was a lower class church that was struggling to get by. They were being persecuted. They were being imprisoned. They were living in their poverty. And the history says that any time a believer in Smyrna came into some sort of resources, whether that was a home or some, something to call their own, that mobs would come and attack that Christian and attack that home and destroy it all. So anytime they got ahead in life, the world just beat them back down. This is the church of Smyrna. Along with the tribulation and poverty, the church of Smyrna is constantly under attack by the Jewish people. Jesus refers to them, verse 9, as those who say they are Jews but are not, but are synagogue of Satan. Whereas in Ephesus, we have nominal Christians here in Smyrna. There are nominal Jewish people. The Jews that were to be representation of God's covenant promises, God's love. They were the individuals which God gave his word and, and sent his prophets to speak of the coming Messiah. They were the people that should have known Jesus and known the people that represented Jesus. And yet here they are opposed to the very nature of God and the very things of God. We find throughout the book of Acts, it was the Jewish people who constantly rose up and attacked the church and attacked Paul and, and attacked anybody who stood for Christianity or, the, or Jesus Christ. So if we're a believer in Smyrna, this is our life. We didn't arrive in, in a nice car. We didn't arrive in any clothes that we could change into. We, we probably wear the same thing all week long. And, and Jesus shows up at our church, at our gathering. Wouldn't you be excited? Oh, praise the Lord. Jesus, you're going to put an end to it all, aren't you? What does he say? Hey, guys, you're about to suffer. The devil is about to throw some of you in in prison. I was at that church, and I'm reading this, and I'm already going through all this stuff. I'm going to become like Peter, and I'm just going to open my mouth, even if my foot goes in it. Jesus, we're your people. We're the ones, we're your church, we're the ones. Remember, you said, I heard you say, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the rock and the foundation of the church. How can you say there's no relief coming? How can you say in the midst of all that we're going through right now that it's going to get worse? But that's what Jesus says. He says, You're about to. Meaning, these things that you've gone through, there's still more to come on the horizon. The relief you're looking for in this world isn't going to come. This is the message to the church. Not quite the pep talk we want, right? And in our day and age, a lot of people would buckle and say, Well, why would I want anything to do with that? And then some people would bring false doctrine into this thought, Well, Well, Jesus, what about faithing things into existence? What about if I believe and I have good thoughts, then it will happen? If that were biblical, don't you think Jesus Christ would have told the church of Smyrna that exact instruction? Look, guys, I know you're in poverty. I know you're being persecuted. I, I know you've been in prison and you're going to continue to go in prison. And I know Satan's going to come after you. But if you just have faith in the good things, good things will happen to you. If that was the message and if that was biblical, that would fit perfectly here within this church. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says the exact opposite. He said, look, guys, I know things are tough, but it's not going to get easier. You're surrounded by God's covenantal people and they are living opposed to God and to who you represent. They are an assembly of God's enemy because they stand opposed. You are surrounded by the riches and the beauty of God's creation is all around you. It's being flaunted in front of you, and yet you have none of it, and you're not going to get any of it. You are surrounded by people who live in freedom, yet you're going to be constantly thrown into prison. And we think of prison in our world, we think of maybe someone going, they get in trouble, or they, you know, they didn't make court date or whatever, and maybe someone can get them out on bail or you know, buy a bond and they can get released. That's not prison in the Roman world. When you went to prison in the Roman world, it almost always meant execution. Very few people got out of prison. Paul was was an anomaly. But he got into prison, he got put under house arrest, and then he got released, eventually got put back in prison and faced execution. Jesus' relief to this church is not that you're going to miss prison or you're not going to go through suffering. His relief to the church is found in verse 10. He says, some of you are going to go into prison that you may be tested, tested for what? Tested by their faith, that they are going to remain faithful. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. The meaning of 10 days is that this imprisonment, this this tribulation, this persecution is only going to be momentary. Notice Jesus does not promise them they are going to get out of prison." The statement means is that you're going to be put into tribulation for a period of time, but you can rest easy because when this life is over, glory awaits. This life is only momentary. The struggles you go through in this life is only momentary. Again, it's not much of a pep talk. But what Jesus does is he comes to this church in the midst of struggle and persecution in the midst of all these hard times. And he gives them a reminder of two things, who they are, and who they will become. Look there in verse 9, the reminder of who they are. He says, you are rich. And then the reminder of who they will become in verse 10, do not fear because I will give you the crown of life. Before we get into his minors, one thing that came to my mind is saying, how do we miss this? How do we go through the struggles of life and the struggles of this world and the struggles sometimes as a church and, and, and how do we miss these statements which Jesus comes to this church in the midst of poverty, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of being threatened for their life and He says, you know what, despite all of your circumstances, you are rich. And just playing a, a, a play on the word Smyrna, here's where I came to, to understand why Jesus had to remind this church that they are rich they look upon this city and they look upon everybody living in extravagance and just flourishing, is that bitterness blinds us to the blessings of God. Bitterness will blind us to the blessings of God. As the believers in Smyrna saw the beauty and the wealth and knowing that it's something that they were never going to be able to obtain in this world, that if they even had a little bit of it, they would be viciously attacked and they would be destroyed. They live in a city that enjoyed riches and emperor worship and and all these pagan festivities. And they were amongst wicked and ungodly people. And as you're a believer living in Smyrna, you look out and you see wicked and ungodly people flourishing, taking advantage of others. We could honestly say the grass is greener. It is better on the other side. Why in the world am I doing this? Why am I following Jesus Christ? Why am I associating myself with this church? Why am I doing this? If I just get out of this, I could flourish too because everything outside the church was going great. And wouldn't it be hard not to allow bitterness to begin to build up? But God, why? Why are you letting this happen? Why are you making me go through this? Why is this, why, why do they get everything? So we become bitter and we become hard. And so Jesus has to come to this church and says, you know what, guys, despite all of that's going on, despite all that you're going to go through, here's the truth. Don't let your eyes deceive you. Here's the truth. You are rich. You may not have it in your pocketbooks. You may not even feel it in your heart and in your mind. It may not even be what you see. But when the word of truth comes to us and says, despite everything that we don't have, that we are rich, we better understand what Jesus is trying to tell us. Because what we can do is we can look out into the world and we can see all the things that we don't have, all the things that other people have, all the things other people seem to get away with while we struggle, and we can become bitter, and we don't become bitter at the world, but we become bitter at God. God, why are you doing it? What did I do to you? And so our blindness to the blessings of God causes bitterness to blindness to the riches of God. And we begin falling into what is known as a comparison trap. We see everything that we don't have and everything everyone else has. And personally, I've learned that when I start comparing myself to others and what I think I should have and what they have and why are they able to do, all, do those, those things all the time, I lose what Jesus Christ promises this church. that is victory and a joy-filled life. That's what the crown of life means. We'll dive in that here in a moment. This church sees the glamour and the prosperity. And here's what happens. The king of kings and the Lord of lords comes to them and says, you know what, guys? Forget all this stuff. You're rich. Your daddy's building mansions for you. All this stuff you see, your your daddy paves his streets in gold. You're rich. All this stuff, all this glamour of this world all going to be done away with it will not last and you are rich because of who you belong to jesus comes to this church and he does not take smyrna's pain away or tell them that they were doing anything wrong all he does is tell them they've become blind to the riches that they already had see the problem wasn't their circumstance the problem was their perspective How many of us wrestle with that? It's not our circumstance, it's our perspective. I do that all the time. And the problem is, is when I begin comparing myself to another sinful individual, I'm missing the point of who I should actually be comparing myself to. So if I compare myself to another sinful individual and what they have and what they they do and all that stuff, I missed the point that I'm not comparing myself to Jesus Christ. And if I'm not comparing myself to Jesus Christ, then I'm not becoming more like Christ. We serve a Lord and Savior who didn't own a house. He didn't have an IRA. He didn't have a 401K. He didn't have any stocks, mutual funds, bonds. He had one outfit as far as I know and one pair of shoes as far as I know. Never married, never had kids, and yet He was rich. And blessed, and he was joy filled. Why? Because one lesson that this church, Smyrna, I believe, had to learn that we need to learn is the richness we have is something the world cannot give us, which means it's something the world cannot take away from us. The reminder to Smyrna is that they were already rich, and that word rich means that they were abounding and abundantly supplied. So this church that lived in poverty, who had nothing and surrounded by prosperities, they look out and see the richness of the world. Jesus speaks the truth that the city that lives in darkness and masquerades itself with all this wealth, but the richness actually lied within the church. The richness was in the body; it had nothing to do with their bank account, had nothing to do with the stuff they own. The richness is because who owned them, who they belonged to. They were rich because they were covered by the mercy of God. They were rich because they were no longer under the wrath of God. They were rich because they had redemption. They they understood grace. They understood who Jesus Christ was. And so God tells us in His word, Word that as we live in this world, we are now vessels in Romans chapter 9 in order to make known the riches of God's glory for vessels of mercy. In Romans chapter 10, that the Lord is bestowing His riches on all who call upon Him. In Ephesians chapter 3, it is God's riches that according to His riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Notice it does not say He may grant you more money and more stuff of this world. But the power through His Spirit and it's this richness that this world hasn't given us, but God continues to give us in Colossians that we are to be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Here's the thing the church this morning knows, needed to know, and here's the thing we may need to know here this morning. My richness is my salvation. And if I did nothing else in this world, I'm rich. My richness is my salvation. Because now that I am saved and I know I am saved, I have eternal glory awaiting for me. You talk about a retirement plan. Something I didn't have to work for, I couldn't buy, and I can't earn. And yet that is the richness that God gives his children. See, in the eyes of God and and what Jesus comes to preach to this church, not in a, a rebuking sort of way, he comes to remind this church that as they look out in this world that just is flourishing, he says, you know what? Faithfulness is flourishing. You be faithful to me and you flourish by God's standards. So no matter what we go through in life, no matter what we're struggling with, no matter what time or what, or what issues we find ourselves dealing with, the promise is that when we remain faithful, we realize our richness. But I'm not faithful to this world. I'm faithful to the God who calls me out of this world. And so Jesus comes and he reminds them of who, not only who they are, but who are they to become in verse 10 and 11 of chapter 2. Do not fear. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second second death. Again, Jesus doesn't promise to take them out of their circumstances, but he reminds them to live faithfully in the midst of their circumstances. It's our nature that we go before God and we say, God, please take this away. God, please take this pain away. God, please do something about this situation. What Jesus does is he comes to this church, he says, you know what? You don't need to fear these things because I've got you. You're rich. And if you just remain faithful to me and ultimately to God, despite what's going on in your world and all around you, you'll flourish. You may not experience it on this world, but trust me, I'm preparing for you a crown of life for the one who conquers. The reminder is a charge to leave a life of fear and now leave a life of faithfulness. Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and all and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. All these things that we can worry about, they begin to creep up into fear that begins to give birth to bitterness. All these things that we can become overwhelmed with and we can wonder and we can question God about. God already comes and says, you know, just seek me first and seek my righteous first. And all these things will be taken care of because faith changes our perspective. And even if we were to go through persecution, like the church of Smyrna, the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 5, that blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And we may pray and pray, God, please take this away. Please take this away. Please do something. And sometimes God has to come to our life. He's did with the apostle Paul and remind us of the richness we already have. My grace is sufficient. You already have my grace. You already have the riches of my throne room and and the riches of my spirit and the riches of my son and the riches of the promise of eternal salvation. That's all you need. No, the Bible never promises. Matter of fact, it actually says the exact opposite. As we live in this world for Jesus Christ, things are going to become uncomfortable. They're going to become uncomfortable. We're going to have things put upon our heart that we just want to start giving more stuff away than keeping it. We're going to have people ridicule us that we're not living the way they think we should live. And we're not doing the things they think they should do. It's going to become uncomfortable. But the Bible tells us in James that we are to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter that blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to His great mercy. And that word great means His rich mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perished those tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I have no doubt there's people in this room, and we're all going through different sorts of struggles and different sorts of questions and different sorts of battles with our faith. But here's what faith does. Faith does not eliminate our troubles. Our faith is to get us through and lift us above them. Jesus doesn't call us to live by faith so everything in this world will disappear. But instead now we turn our eyes to the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, took up his cross and despising its shame that we might be saved. Because of His sacrifice, we are rich. The Bible says that if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. And so the charge here in Revelation is you are to be faithful unto death. There's a reminder that no matter what we go through, that death is imminent. Everybody here is going to die. So isn't it odd we try to hang on to this life as much as we can? We're going to all leave it behind one day. And yet we are all like the church here, And that we cling more and we fear more of what is known as the first death. Jesus gives the promise, if you remain faithful, I'm going to give you the crown of life. Verse 10, and the one who conquers or overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. The crown of life does not mean royalty or wealth, but victory and joy. And the second death means those who receive the full judgment of God because they're still in their sin. So everyone's going to taste the first death, and there's no escaping the first death unless Jesus returns. But the issue here is that we prepare more for the first death than live for the second. The second death in the Jewish world and the Jewish understanding here in Revelation is the term death that is used for the wicked into the next world. It is a death that cuts off all existence. So when we die in this world, that's the first death, and so we, we may lose hope. But the second death means we lose all hope. There is no more hope. And Jesus promises them is that if you remain faithful, if you conquer, you're not going to be hurt. You're not going to be touched by the wrath of God upon the sins of this world. You will escape the second death. And that is the richness that you have because you are found in me. So our theme is not, oh, you know, everything is peachy and rainbows and lollipops. Our theme is death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory or the crown of life. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore, my beloveds, we will be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of our Lord, knowing that the Lord, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. That's what awaits us. Sometimes we don't have the things in this world that I'm, I'm, this is what I'm learning more every day and I still feel, we don't have the things in this world that we think we deserve or we need because it will make us be more attached to this world than the next. And if I'm more attached to this world, then I'm probably not going to be preaching for the next one. Jesus comes to this church in the midst of all this stuff that none of us would want to be a part of. Hey, who wants to go be persecuted? Hey, who wants to live in complete poverty on the streets? No job, no food. Who wants to do that? Hey, we've got to sign up for anybody wanting to go to prison for Jesus next week. Come on the bar. None of us want to be that. And so Jesus comes to this church in the midst of it and says, you are rich because you are in me. Because you are me, and if you remain faithful, though you're going to go through these trials and tribulations and these tests, if you remain faithful, I have a crown of life awaiting for you. And you're not even going to be touched by the second death or the judgment of God because you're covered by my righteousness. That's richness. That's the richness we boast in. That's the gospel. If you're here this morning, as I was walking through this one thing that I was challenging, and every week God kind of steps on my toes. Are you a believer but living in bitterness? Thinking you you deserve something more. Things should be better than what they are. Because when we become bitter, we become blind to what God has already given us. But maybe you're here and you are living in spiritual poverty. Because you don't have Jesus. You don't understand the richness of His grace that we sang of as we started. For There is a God who created the heavens and the earth and that God loves you and loves me. But our sin separates us from Him. And until that sin is dealt with, until that sin is taken care of, we are going to be separated from God and under His condemnation, under His wrath, under His judgment. But because God loves us and extends grace, His richness, mercy, and grace, He sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins and placed Him the tomb and rose again. And the Bible says, when I believe that and I confess Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, that I am in sin, but I want to be blessed and enriched with salvation i believe in my heart that god sent his son to die for my sins and rise again and then i have to confess it with my mouth and the bible says when i do that i am saved eternally this crown of life this second death that's me this richness that's me it's something the world can't give and the world can't take away but god freely gives in this moment I don't know where you are, but if you need Jesus, this this is the day. This is the moment. You don't have to have it all figured out. And your life doesn't have to be all together at this moment. It definitely wasn't for Smyrna. But God invites us to be a part of it. Maybe you're here and you already did that. And again, maybe you're just struggling with bitterness. You're just mad at God. You think you're mad at somebody else, but you're really mad at God. He's come kneel before the Father and repent. Hand that over to him and turn away from it because it will tear you apart. I don't know where you are, but now is the time to respond. We ask Jackson to come up and lead us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us, Lord. Thank you that you have stated for all eternity as your children, we are rich. Father, forgive my heart, forgive my mind, forgive the way I see things when I don't see that and live in that richness. Father, forgive my bitterness and anger But has not allowed me to live in that victory and that joy that you promise. We are more than conquerors. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, I, I know that we're all going through different things. We're all going through different questions and different strugglings with our faith. Father, we would just turn our eyes to you realizing that you've given us everything for life and godliness. All we need. And Lord, I pray for the individuals here this morning who have yet to accept you as Lord and Savior. They're living in this world and you're trying to call them out of it. Father, their hearts would be soft in this moment. Their ears would hear what your Spirit has spoken to them. Give them the courage to just come forward and let it be known they want Jesus. They want to be saved. They want to be in this richness. I want to thank you for saving us from our sins. Thank you for preparing a place for us. And Lord, thank you for the promise you're coming back to take us there. We ask in this moment as we respond to your word, respond to what you've laid upon our hearts, that this be a moment that is pleasing to you, that is. Fueled by the Spirit and the truth of your word, and we're responding to that. Forgive us if we failed you in any way as we've gathered in your name and as your body. And let this time be a pleasing aroma. Praise all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.